0: Welcome everyone to season one, episode one of the On Path podcast. Every episode features a conversation with a guest about their life and career to date, the path they're on. These are all people I am personally inspired by. So it's a pleasure to record our conversation and share what they have to say. For this episode, I am thrilled to be speaking to my friend and former colleague, Yoav. Yoav is an e-commerce marketer at the global agency Saatchi & Saatchi in New York. He works on Startup Pampers of Procter & Gamble. A couple words on his very interesting background. Yuav is Swiss-American, born and raised in Geneva, and trilingual, speaking English, French, and Hebrew. He has a dual major in economics and political science from McGill University in Canada. So, that's the formal intro, but the real reason I'm excited to have Yuav as my first guest is he's someone I respect a lot and look to learn from. I got to know Yoav three years ago in late 2017. He's extremely considerate, thoughtful, curious, humble, well-spoken. I think all of this comes through in the conversation. So with all that said, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did.
1: So welcome, Yoav. Thank you, Vijay. I'm very happy to be here. So to begin with,
0: I thought it might be fun to talk about something Non-marketing, non-work-related. A couple of years back, you took me to my first and to date only dance-off, and we got to see uh, T-Pain and Ludacris. Are you still going to dance-offs? What got you into them?
1: Yeah, I'm. I am. Although in the past few months there has been a, a slight decline because of uh, COVID and all of that, I definitely am still going. That one that I brought to you, too, was was a really specific one. I don't know why T-Pain was there, but it was a fun one. Yeah, uh, what got me into this? When I was, like, 11, I was all into acrobatics, snowboarding, skateboarding, and, you know, the next logical step was trying to headspin, basically. So I got into breakdancing, and then I tried all of the hip-hop styles and finally found popping which was my preferred style of dancing and I've been I've been doing it ever since and I I bring it with me wherever I go so I've been to Geneva Montreal back to Geneva and then New York and uh, it's always been there's always been a community there's always been great events and it's always been an, an amazing way to meet people
0: To set the stage now, it would be great if you could give uh, a a short intro on Lumi by Pampers, what it is and and what your uh, current role is there.
1: So Lumi by Pampers is part of the innovation brand of Pampers, the baby diaper brand. Uh, And what it does is it really tries to help parents in their parenting journey, specifically with baby development, baby sleep. And just well-being of the family. So we have a few techie products. We sell a baby monitor that you put in your room, and you can watch baby from from your phone, and it's all connected to an app. And through the app, you can also track uh, your baby's sleep, and help your baby develop a better sleep routine because a lot of people don't realize that um, baby sleep is like super important for your baby's development and um, and so that's what we try to do with Lumi by Pampers. It's really like help parents through their parenting journey. And so my role, since we, we launched as a solely e-commerce website, so we only sell online. Um, we're about to start retail, but we, we were only selling online for almost up to a year. And my role has been twofold. One is more on the operations side where I really help with order fulfillment, making sure that orders go through, being in contact with customer service as well. And then on the other side, it's it's really heavily based on marketing. So I work on email marketing, digital marketing, and all the analysis that goes around it.
0: Email marketing is definitely a, a topic that I want to dig into a, a little bit later. Very undervalued in general and in, in e-commerce just seems absolutely critical to me. So, you know, the intro, I mentioned your very multinational background and how you lived in different countries, but I'm curious, what got you into marketing and what keeps you in marketing?
1: So what got me into marketing? Well, you know, very well, I just graduated from McGill with a bachelor in uh, political science and economics, which is a lot of big topics that don't really point you to a specific career. And when I got back to Geneva, I was looking for jobs and applying here and there. And I found Goodwall, the startup looking to help students all over the world connect to universities and just positioning itself as a LinkedIn for young people. So I interviewed with Goodwall and I met the whole team the first day and it really felt good. One thing led to another. They hired me for, for an internship that then led to a full-time job in marketing and through that startup i really got to see a lot of different facets of marketing because we were a very small and lean team and i got to work in both the geneva and new york office so that was my first experience uh, in marketing and i was part of your team it was great what keeps me in marketing is the general interest that i have in people and the think and communication and how to communicate with people so that it, it resonates with them. You have to be extremely compassionate. So that's what I find very interesting for me. Uh, and that's why I keep doing it. Just to start things off,
0: I thought it would be interesting to go off an observation, which is in e-commerce marketing, you have so much quantitative information, but on the flip side, you don't have the same kind of qualitative information you would with a uh, brick and mortar store. So when somebody walks in to your shop, first of all, you know that somebody's there. You can see, are they distracted while they're shopping or they're not? Do they seem interested? You can talk to them. As an e-commerce marketer, is this something that resonates with you?
1: So I wouldn't say there's a lack of qualitative information because we have surveys, we have customer service coming back to us with a lot of information from customers. But it's true that if if someone drops out, 99% of the time, we're not gonna know why. And that's that's where we want the data.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and in a traditional setting it's it's just so hard to aggregate that information, right? Like even just like how many people almost reached the purchase point today. And then you you could collect that, but it would be a lot harder. Okay, so there's a post I saw the other day by this interesting individual in the e-commerce marketing space that I follow, Dave Gerhardt of Privy. And this is the whole post. He says, how to measure marketing 101 colon sales. So especially in e-commerce marketing, this this seems spot on. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think it's spot on. There are ways to measure the in-between, you know, like you can measure that your 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 drop-off rate from landing page to add to cart has increased between week one and week four. But ultimately you're just looking at sales and how a specific campaign or specific ad has increased your sales.
0: And do you feel sometimes that just makes life easier? Like it's there's a very clear metric on which
1: Yeah, I think it does make it easier. I think in general, as a best practice, it's better to have less KPIs than too many KPIs. Um, And so if you can measure it on solely this one KPI, I think it's great. But then you don't want to forget about the, the overall experience of people when they get to your store. Because if you have the best product in the world and you're still selling you know, the the number that you're trying to hit, like 100 a day, but the experience is terrible. So really you would be selling 200 a day if the experience was way better. Then maybe you have a few other things to track.
0: Yeah. So speaking of metrics, what are some of the metrics that you're looking at on a regular
1: basis? So click through, first of all, that goes for everything. And from there, how many people actually add to cart, and then how many people reach checkout. And then we forget that some people will reach checkout and drop off. So that's also an important metric. We wanna know that if you've reached checkout, you're you're really intentional on buying the product. So if you're dropping off at this point, either something's wrong with the checkout or something's wrong with the customer, which is usually not the case.
0: And and what kind of uh, uh, cadence do you have when you're looking at the metrics? Is it like are you on it on an hourly basis, or is it more that you let let things uh, gather and then do a, a more thorough analysis on a weekly basis?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely the, the second type. Um, I guess it also stems from the fact that I'm not uh, putting these the the uh, the ads in facebook manager or uh, or launching the email campaigns myself mm-hmm. uh, i manage those processes but i'm not uh doing it myself so i i have a less regular basis on looking at these metrics okay i do look a lot at the 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 general health of our sales mm-hmm. so just in general like every morning i know how many sales we've made last night for example and things like that okay and that's more of my operations role yeah,
0: and so part of your job is kind of getting uh, getting these metrics from all the different people who are who are doing the execution. Yeah. yeah, And so, what do you use? So you get a ton of information, right, from all these different systems. How are you making sense of that? Is it just spreadsheets? Is it something more complex than that?
1: We have partners, our media pa- partners, that uh, help us put those together in a in a presentation. So we go over these. And a- another way is for me, I love spreadsheets. If you know how to use them, they're the most flexible way to, uh, to gather your data, put your notes in, like basically everything you want. So I'm big on that. I-, I use Data Studio for the recurring data, you know, so like sales per day and things like that. I built the dashboard for-, for my team. Uh, I think that's super useful if it's an automated process. But if you're still experimenting and, and, and want more insight, I think spreadsheets are super useful for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, even in my personal life, I use it all the time. It just it, It's such a powerful but easy to use and flexible uh, tool.
1: I'm not surprised that you use it in your personal
0: life. <laughs> so now there are two specific areas that I think are important in marketing in general, but from, from the little I know of e-commerce marketing seem absolutely critical to me. So the first is reviews, uh, and the second is emails. So maybe we can talk a little bit about reviews first. So last weekend, I was shopping online for a water flosser. And there's basically like one big brand that does all the water flossers and came across their product. It had a 4.4, I think, out of five. So I clicked through and look at the, the breakdown of the reviews. And as is usually the case, it's very extreme. You have in this case, mostly five-star reviews, and then everything that's not a five-star is a one-star. But if you look at that, the reviews that are at the top, what is marked as most helpful, was all the one-star reviews. You know what strikes me is also sometimes that there, there's a non-product part of the experience that causes the bad review, like uh, the package arrived wet, and yeah. you know things like that. But I guess ultimately is, is part of the experience. So just uh, t- talk to me a bit about reviews.
1: Yeah, I agree that they're super useful. I'm the same. I always check out reviews. I always want to know what other people say. And it's really where you get to hear the candid experience from, from customers. I think in general, some people are the type to always leave a review. And some people just never do. Some people just don't feel like it's worth it or they're not incentivized, whether that's some compensation or some discount after the fact, or just in general, make the experience so delightful that you feel like leaving a review makes sense for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'd love to dig into that a bit more. Sometimes when I stay at hotels, I get a a follow-up email, let's say five days after, pestering me for a review. And then there's a whole chain of emails after that, none of which I've reacted to. So how do you think about incentivizing reviews and, uh, and getting reviews?
1: I think, first of all, the brand needs to be more personable or, uh, or feel more of, just feel closer to you than um, like a big hotel asking you, demanding that you leave a review, like you said. Um, and I, as you were saying this, I was thinking about Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Because Airbnb you always leave a review. I think you can skip it. But every time I've used Airbnb and any other person I know of leaves a review because you're leaving a, a review for the host who is an individual. Yeah. And you might have even met in real life. And even if you didn't, you chatted, you, you prepared your trip with them, they helped you out. And so having that kind of closeness with the with the Person or the brand, the, the, the commerce that that provided you the, the the product or the service that you're now using makes you feel more inclined to leave a review. And then on top of that, obviously incentivizing people with uh, with great offers. So if you if you have, unfortunately, if you're if you're a shop of a single product, there's not much incentivized for, right? Yeah. But if you have a whole suite of products, or if you have partner. Uh, brands that you can you can work with to, to provide uh, extra value for those who leave a review. It's tough for us because we have a lot of different customers. Some are expecting a baby, but only in six months. Some uh, are already two months into baby's birth. And, and so obviously we try to figure out where they're at in the parenting journey, but it's not always easy.
0: Yeah, I see the many positive reviews. Is there so, some specific thing that you've done that's uh, helped uh, with that, or
1: so Pampers has the Pampers Club app, and um, so you do get points for your review, and points in, it can then translate into the money value in, inside the rewards apps that you so you can buy, you know, toys. Uh, diapers
0: and as you mentioned earlier, it's a great place for customer feedback, right? Leverage the negative reviews.
1: Yeah. You should always treat your product and your store as the first iteration where you're, you're always gathering feedback. You're always getting customer insights and and doing interviews if you can, because there's always new things that you're testing and you might've forgotten about this one thing that makes everyone pissed off or that doesn't work for most people. And it's when you're, when your head is, is constantly in your store, you're not thinking about these things and a random customer might remind you of them.
0: Yeah. And then an obvious point, but I think still worth mentioning is just make it easy. I love those emails that you get sometimes asking you to leave reviews where with a single click, you can give your feedback. For sure. So maybe let's move on to emails now. How, how do you leverage uh, email marketing uh, with what you're working on right now?
1: Okay, so uh, the software that we use to manage our email and in-app notification is Braze. Okay. I- I'm not familiar with other software, so I'm not going to compare it. But uh, it allows us to create timelines of email. So whenever we have a promotion, let's say this weekend we'll have a Labor Day promotion where you get... a uh, 15% off um, a few products on the store. We'll have email one, email two, email three. And throughout the, the three emails, the, the messaging is kind of the same, but the urgency becomes more more prominent. So I think the, the importance of email marketing is really the amount of touch points because it's the only platform that is entirely free. And it's also... If you do it the right way, it's going to people who are warm leads almost. People who have an interest in your product. And so if you target them with the right messaging, whether it's uh, people who drop off your your store but still gave their their email because they're interested, so you help them learn about your product, and then you retarget them with with, with offers and promotion throughout the year, at some point you're going to hit... Sale with them.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point that it's, there isn't an algorithm or a company in between that's deciding whether they see your message or not.
1: It's really like you sending a message to your customers.
0: Yeah. And, and people check it every day, multiple times a day.
1: Yeah. No, I'm a big believer in email also because I, I, I purchased a lot of things, getting offers in my email. So
0: somebody is in your store. They go through all the way, they've left all their information, For whatever reason, they don't go through with the order. Do you get back to them uh, in the first email with just a message or already with some kind of offer?
1: The first email is usually an offer and then they, they become part of what we call the welcome series, that is a series of emails taking them through um, the product, what, we're, what the, the brand is about, and then they they also on top of that get every promotional email that we do, um, you know every time there's a there's a sale like for Black Friday there's obviously going to be a sale for the holiday season, uh, Father's Day, Mother's Day, things like that.
0: Yeah. Do you use emojis in your subject line?
1: Yeah. I like them. I think they they are they're, they're, they're good. Uh, according to the research, they work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you
0: think. About it. It's such a powerful way to stand out, especially in a, in a mobile inbox. You have an emoji and I'm surprised by how few brands use them. It's definitely a way to differentiate, I think. Do you use their names in the in the subject line?
1: Yeah, if possible, for sure.
0: Yeah, cool. Any other dimensions you use to, the, to segment the kind of email they're getting? So beyond just like what stage in the checkout process they might be?
1: We have a specific campaign for uh, those who abandoned their cart. Um, And that also goes straight into an offer, but specifically reminding them what was in their cart. Uh, So it's, it's very important to have a website that allows you to do that. If someone logs in, you have to capture that information and you have to capture what they did on the site so that you can respond accordingly. I like getting emails from brands where it's a single individual messaging you. It obviously comes from the team, but it's like, hey, this is Brian. I'm, I, I noticed that your your cart was left hanging. Tell me if I can help. And I got an email like that the other, the other day from a brand, and it I just replied with a question, you know, rather than just leaving it there because I feel like I, it's not going to go anywhere kind of messaging made me want to reply.
0: Yeah, I've seen many B2B brands doing that these days and often with the well, founder it's an automated email but but you hit reply and you know that there's a person behind and it's still even it's one of those things where even though you know it's not real it still feels better. Exactly. Yeah. And it's from their name and you see their photo and usually the, the message is also more personal. Another interesting topic HTML emails or just plain text emails.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've always done HTML, but that's exactly my point. I think HTML sometimes makes sense. I think at customer service, it's always plain text. There might be a logo here and there, but uh, that makes it in a way more actionable because you might think that an email with CTAs and a, and a big hero image feels already like it's the brand and it's the sales side of the brand that's, uh, that's sending you this, whereas plain text um, feels more actionable.
0: Cool. Okay. Another topic I wanted to touch upon is marketing agencies and just agencies in general. So you work okay. for an agency, Sachi and Saatchi in New York City, and you work with many other agencies. I'm curious to hear in your experience working with agencies, what is something that people don't readily appreciate or what is something that you didn't realize that now you realize actually is, is a great aspect of working with
1: agencies? Yeah. Um, a big part of it to me was the, the professionalism that's involved in there because you can get a lot of the same services from freelancers and things like that, but the, the agency allows you to be connected to not only the person delivering the work, but all the people around them who have the information, whether it's legal, whether it's across borders, whether it's just business practices that make it a lot easier for the people delivering the work to be effective. And so, and that's what I found amazing at Saatchi and, and other agencies that I worked with. It is so professional.
0: So in your current role, how many different agencies are you working with and what are their roles?
1: So we work with one media agency handling a lot of our online ads, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, and other search and programmatic advertising. We have worked and will work with affiliate partners. So either they put us in touch with micro influencers and influencers to deliver content or create content for us directly. And then we have worked and are working with branding agencies.
0: Okay. So how does the interaction look like? Mm -hmm. Of course, now it's all virtual, but pre-COVID, were there a lot of in-person meetings? Did those in-person meetings add a lot of value?
1: I personally am a fan of, uh, of remote work and online meetings, um, but it's true that those face-to-face meetings allow for the conversations that you wouldn't have on an online call, either when the call is done or when you're just about to enter the room, you're still talking, you're still sharing ideas. But otherwise, I'd say like the dynamic of an agency, and I used to be in the Big publicist building where you have not only Sachi but a lot of different agencies working under the same parent agency, which is Publicist Group. You really feel like you have access to everything. You can go to another floor and get people who are experts on a topic A, and then go 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 upstairs and, and talk to someone who's done work on you know health industry and sports and everything around there. So. It's, it's really, really great. Again, I'm a fan of online work. I think, if anything, it's a good um, practice for us to learn how to work remotely. Yeah. Because anyways, a lot of the, the agencies that we work with are not in New York.
0: All right. So one question I have for you is, what are some resources that you've found to be useful in learning about e-commerce marketing and marketing in general?
1: So one thing I realized going into this field, specifically of e-commerce is there's is, there's a lot, a lot to learn out there. So I would start with the fundamentals. So really learning about the, the conversion f- funnel and try to, to really understand what's the typical path that we assign to a consumer and how do we reach that consumer across the different stages of the funnel And on each one of these stages, what is your strategy to move that person to the next stage of the funnel? And then learn about the job functions that will be uh, around you. So I think very important to learn what a product manager does because you'll be working with that person very closely. And, you know, the product manager is like a key element of an e-commerce Team, and um, that person is most likely more technical than you as a marketer. So you have to strive to like get to that point of understanding where you guys can communicate in a way that's efficient uh, and make decisions based on the the technical capabilities of your product. And then, in terms of resources, which I'm finally getting at, so all those topics that I just talked about, I, I would go onto YouTube or just a simple Google search and start my uh, my journey across uh, all these topics of learning. And then, if you want to get in more details, I would recommend the Perpetual Traffic podcast. I think it's run by uh, someone at an at a at a growth marketing agency and they typically interview other people from agencies or brands that are specifically into performance marketing Uh, and they will really get into for example there's a really good episode a two-part episode on how the Facebook ad platform works basically and they get super into detail and it's the kind of thing that I, I wouldn't have the courage to read on because it would be a very long article but the conversation there really like taught me a lot so they have a a lot of great content and it gives you a a very good idea of how an agency would help a brand basically grow its e-commerce presence
0: cool cool thank you for that yeah i have a follow-up question when the marketing team is coming together there's so many different areas of marketing there's digital marketing there's uh, copywriting, the creatives, marketing ops, in your case, what are some functions that have to absolutely be in-house? If you take the example of like Apple, design and marketing has to be in-house because that's so central to who they are. But you could imagine other things that are maybe more effective if it's done by an outside party, especially when when you're at the early stages. So in your situation, what are some areas of marketing that have to be done in-house and others that you think uh, are better done by by agencies or freelancers?
1: So the latter part is easier to answer. I think anything to do with production will usually, there's plus side on having an agency help you because they just have the resources and they're used to it. Um, I think the, the first part of the question is harder because... I'm part of a structure where a lot of what you would do in-house is actually done by people at the agency. But I would say like the more than more than just copywriting, the general communication strategy has to be in-house.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think for innovative products, the product marketing aspect of it has to be in-house because you're not necessarily competing on, on incremental features, but something completely new. Hey again, everyone, glad you've made it till here. So we've talked a lot about marketing and e-commerce, and that's kind of where Yuv and I ended our conversation, but as I went back and listened to it, I realized there are so many interesting parts about a story that we didn't even touch. And I also realized that I want these podcast interviews to be as much about the person as about the work they do. So I asked you all if you could do a second part and talk about some big decisions in his life, major influences, some of his passions, and he kindly agreed. So we did a part two to add on to what you just heard. And honestly, I enjoyed the second part even more. So here it is. Well, I have some questions I'd like to ask you about your background, so the, the first question I have is, if you think back to your childhood, are there any funny, quirky stories that you'd like to share?
1: Okay. Yeah. 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 One, one that just came to mind actually, I don't know why, but when I was, I probably was like three or four years old, so I don't fully remember it, but I've been told we were at my friend's house and they're at the pool my family and my brother and sister were having lunch and I decided to go jump in the pool without my, uh, inflatables. I think that's what you call it. So me being the, the very like uh, confident kid that I was, I just said, Hey mom, look at me. And I just jumped in the pool and obviously did not know how to swim. Uh, so thank God everyone panicked and my, uh, my good family friend came and rescued me from, the, <laughs> from drowning into the pool. So yeah, it always made me laugh. Uh,
0: that's interesting, because actually that ties into something, an observation I made in the, in the intro and something that I recognized right away. You are a person who is very curious, who's always eager to try new things, fearless in <laughs> diving into the deep end. And so I'm curious to ask you, What's something you've become interested in re- recently or not that, that you're actively learning, that you're immersing yourself in?
1: Um, a few things, but, so I would say the big thing in the past year has been the stock market. Cause I've always kind of like been interested, but not really. And then I decided, um, that the only way to really be interested if I, is if I put some of my money into it. So I did that uh, and I started reading a lot and following the market. So that's thing, one thing I learned a lot about. But it's not my favorite. So in the past year, I've also done singing classes when I was back in New York before uh, the quarantine hit us. So I had to stop that. And I've also gotten back into ceramics with my mom. So that's been a, a great journey.
0: Wow. Yeah. Would you like to sing something? (laughs) We have the microphones turned on.
1: No, I don't think my microphone will will flatter my voice today.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So another period of your life that I want to ask you about is a topic we've talked about uh, uh, a lot and you know how passionate I am about Japan. And you actually lived there for a while and you studied there, went to university as part of an exchange program. So um, I was wondering if you could share what led up to that and what was the experience like? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, totally. I am passionate about Japan and this topic of conversation in general. What led me to it is I decided my exchange should be in a place that's the furthest from what I've known so far. So I had lived in Geneva my childhood and then moved to Canada for, for college. And Asia seemed like the, a, a, a really great place in terms of the dynamic of the cities there and also the cultural aspect of it in terms of uh, learning and being immersed into a new culture. So I applied to Hong Kong, Seoul in Korea, and Tokyo in Japan, and I eventually ended up in Japan. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I still keep in touch with a few friends there. And I also have been very eager to form relationships with people from Japan whenever they come to New York or Switzerland.
0: That's interesting to hear that it was a very deliberate choice to go to someplace in Asia and you kind of shortlisted these three places and it worked out well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because a lot of people who were on exchange there, who were either from, you know, Europe or the United States or elsewhere, they had a real interest in Japanese culture prior to to going. So either they were studying Japanese, they were really, really into anime and mangas. And I had none of that, but I was just open. To learning about it.
0: So you went there from Canada. So you, you finished high school in Geneva and you went to Canada. What made you decide uh, to go to Canada?
1: I was a student of the international school in Geneva. As an international school student, you're always encouraged to, to go abroad and experience different places. I was always intrigued by the American system because of its flexibility in terms of learning. So you could go uh, and go into like a liberal arts uh, school and then take a, a lot of classes in different subjects and kind of make your own major that way. And so I ended up in Canada because one, I had family there. McGill was a great school. And, um, and it was that good mix of an American university with a lower price, but also a great campus life. And I, I absolutely loved it. I think Montreal is one of the best places to be a student. I have no basis for comparison apart from Tokyo, but <laughs> I still think so.
0: So life has taken you or you've, you've put yourself in all these different um, places and all these different life situations, even in terms of work experience, you've worked in, in film, You worked as a dance instructor. Can you think of any moments where at the time it felt like a failure, something felt like a failure, but then it turned out to be okay or even very good?
1: Yeah, I think of course my short lived film internship didn't feel like a failure. But I'd say like the whole period before where I was actually unemployed and after where I found a job but I wasn't really into it, that whole period that lasted almost a year, I just knew that I had to, you know, move somewhere else. I learned so much from uh, being at a job that I really didn't enjoy that much. You learn a lot from that because... It's going to happen that some days at your job that you like are just tough. And so that put a lot of things in perspective. And then eventually I got this great opportunity with Sachi. And it, each one of these experiences just teaches me that whatever you're given, just make the best out of it.
0: That's a great philosophy to have. Use a situation as an example of what you don't want. So you learn what you don't want. And that's. That's very useful. That's very instructive. So looking back at your life, are there any people you would say have been very influential? And, and these don't have to be people you necessarily know personally. So it could be, could be an author, it could be a speaker, or it could be somebody you, you actually know well.
1: Yeah, many, many, many. First, I would say the people I surround myself with who are dancers, whether professional or non-professional, because to have that kind of bond with someone and you're sharing a passion but also growing together that's super influential and they influence me not only in my dance but in just in, in my way of life and my way of wanting to become a better person in all aspects not only in dance and then a lot of people online bloggers writers people i hear on podcasts So basically all those people who have either been creators of a project, a company, uh, a movement, all of these things, or just in general, who have made non-conventional choices and it ended up being a good thing for them. super inspiring for me.
0: Since you touched upon podcasts, which one or two podcasts would you recommend?
1: I'm a big fan of uh, How I Built This with Guy Raz. Oh, Invisibilia. Very interesting podcast. They talk about things that are invisible to us, but have a super big impact on our life. So, you know, emotions, feelings, you know. So it's very psychological in that sense, but um, it's well made. And uh, a few of the episodes were, were like amazing.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I will check that out. I've listened to a couple interviews of Guy Raz recently, where he's been interviewed. He has a new book out, and he's actually promoting the How I Built This book. And his story is very fascinating. He talks about how he was a war correspondent, and he also even talks about his mental health issues and how he made the transition uh, from being a journalist, a war journalist, to a podcaster, and all the uncertainty and questions and self doubt he, he faced.
1: Yeah. And it's amazing how, um, I've listened to him so many times, but I don't know much about him at all.
0: Great. Thank you for the recommendation. What would a perfect day look like to you?
1: Can you give me a place in the world? Geneva. Okay. Geneva. Uh, perfect day, summer. Um, On holiday. (laughs) So it would be a mix of uh, a lot of different things. Wake up, uh, be with my girlfriend, be with family, have that moment of like appreciation. And then good breakfast uh, with excellent bread that I miss so much whenever I'm in New York. And then I would say at some point in the day, there has to be a big dance practice for me where I really give it my all, sweat a lot, see a lot of my friends and really push myself physically swim at the lake probably after Uh, some time in the sun, some time to read a book that I'm enjoying and then take my bike back home because I like biking in summer, have a good dinner and enjoy some good wine or more beer with some friends
0: nice that does that does sound like a fabulous day
1: yeah yeah i'm i miss summer already
0: (laughs) i I would start with exactly the same thing i would start with summer as well
1: yeah unless it's like a good winter day where i can go uh, snowboarding i would also do that
0: okay now i I want to talk a little bit about lessons i i think it's always interesting to hear about what people have learned for themselves. What are one or two important life lessons you've learned for yourself?
1: So one for me is that being persistent and focused is a good thing because, and the background here is that I've always been, like you said, interested in many things, willing to try many things, but also a true impatient in that nature. So I often get bored of the new things I try. And I think that's where you have to go the extra mile to get to that point where you feel comfortable in, in that thing you're doing and where you're growing so that you can start to gain true knowledge and experience so uh, whether it's in dance at a job that i'm not sure about with a language that i might be learning be persistent and don't give up too early for me it's been important
0: what's interesting there is that that lesson is really also something very personal for you right based on your character that helps you improve
1: and it's not something i would have told you you know years ago i needed those experiences where i see that i'm being impatient and switching too fast and that i see in other cases where i have persisted i have maybe suffered a little bit but it's it's all for the good of it and i end up being um satisfied with what's happening and happy that i that i went through it it's a it's tough because i always try to (laughs) i always make um links between dance and life. (laughs) But it's tough to grasp because I understand myself. I don't know if people understand me. But in, in dance, I've realized that simplicity is key. As you're starting, you always want to do big moves, things that you think will impress people. But really, you get to a point of experience where the control of your movement is really what people notice most. And so within, let's say, a one-minute round, rather than doing 15 things, you do three things, but you do them so well and so right that it's a lot more powerful. And I guess that's basically the same lesson as, as number one, which is do less but more intentionally and persist through them. And the biggest masters will tell you that they're they're still working on their craft, right? They're never stopping. Even if for you, it seems like just this simple movement, whether it's in golf, that's like a a great example, right? Because you're always working on the same movement, but there is so much you can do to improve, but you just have to be extremely disciplined with it.
0: And in the the context of cooking, I've heard chefs talk about, how they would assess someone by how to make an omelette.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah
0: So it's not about the foam, it's not about the,
1: mm-hmm.
0: all the fancy stuff.
1: Yeah Yeah, and, and when you make uh, something as easy, like as easy as basic, let's say as an omelet, you're also stripping away all the all the more complicated moves or, or tricks or utensils that one might use so the person the chef as a judge of that person's capability can really focus on the skills on the like the basic skill set of that person
0: something i'm curious about you mentioned that you found your preferred dance style to be popping Mm -hmm. how does that fit into the category of so popping is a subcategory of hip-hop is, would that be accurate to say? Uh, <laughs>
1: it's a big, it's a big debate, but yes, that would be accurate. Hip hop is a, it, it's really, it's a culture, right? It's a culture that emerged out of uh, rough neighborhoods in in black and Latino communities around the United States. The thing is, popping really came from the West Coast. When we say that hip hop came from the East Coast. But so eventually we all understood this, um, the the various styles of dance and music that came from all over the United States as under the umbrella of the hip hop culture.
0: Yeah. And uh, what would be some other styles? Styles. Yeah.
1: Um, So breaking, I would say, is like the, the one big famous one. Some people call it break dancing. Some people call it b-boying, b-girling. That really came from New York. Um, That's where you get people going down to the floor uh, and doing maybe more acrobatic moves. That's one. Then you have locking. It's another funky style. Then you have house dancing. That came about from people gathering in clubs uh, around the house era and really mixing up a lot of different styles from salsa, ballet, breaking, like all these different dancers came together and kind of like this, this new style emerged that was on house music. Uh, and then you had like, you know, hip hop party dances that eventually turned into what you're seeing now in commercial music videos and that sort.
0: And how was the popping scene in Tokyo?
1: It was great. It was really, really amazing. There's a lot of talent there in Japan. Japanese, like the that, that community of dancers, was like very early on going to the United States to learn as much as they could, and then bringing it back to Japan, and like really built on that foundation. So they, it's great because when you go to Asia, they have this, this, uh, this. A, a big foundation in a, in a sub-style of popping that we call Boogaloo or not a sub-style, just one of the, one of the types of movements that you see a lot. Um, and you can really see that they've been influenced at the beginning by uh, a group of dancers called the Electric Boogaloos and brought it back and really like that uh, multiplied all over Japan and all over Asia, really. So it was great to find that specific um, type of movement that they do and they do it so well because it forced me as well to like really up my game in Boogaloo specifically.
0: There's another question I think a lot about personally, which is why I'm curious to ask guests on the podcast, and that is having to do with solving problems. We have challenges in our life that can be very difficult to solve. They take a lot of effort, they involve many other parties and they oftentimes no shortcuts, but on the other hand, I've found that there are some things which might seem daunting, but at the end, all it takes is sometimes a little bit of money or sometimes just a little bit of time. I'm curious to hear from you. Are there any challenges or problems that you can think of that You have learned can easily be solved with a little bit of money or time Hmm.
1: that's a great question um oh i want to give a good answer for this
0: (laughs) (laughs) trying to think what i would answer to that i guess just like very fresh in my mind is with the with all this podcasting stuff Mm. going for you know paying the five dollars or paying the ten dollars The music I put in the intro, for example, there's so many websites that provide free music, but I paid a bit for Soundstripe. The search experience was amazing. Everything was seamless. I got a proper license. It didn't cost that much money. It saved me a lot, a lot of time.
1: Yeah. All the little things that actually cost you time, what if you... Put in a little bit of money. So whether it's walking your dog and you need a dog sitter, uh, whether it's um, you you want to cook food at home because it's it's healthier, well, you know, get the more expensive but healthier option when you're eating out instead. Um, if you feel like you need time, uh, you might as well put in some money because your 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 time is is, is very valuable. And then on the flip side. I think put in the time to cook for yourself. Uh, because for me, it solves a lot of, 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 like, it reduces stress a ton, just cooking for myself, like doing nothing, maybe listening to something, music or a podcast, but really, like, taking the time to cook and also knowing that what I eat uh, comes from my own cooking. So I know yeah. what's, in, what's in there.
0: Two more points. First, anything else that you might want people to check out?
1: So I know you're into traveling. And recently, I've, I've watched a couple of videos from this couple um, called Kara and Nate. They have a website and a big YouTube channel. And I found on their blog, Nate is basically like a big business guy and he loves... Um, just knowing how people make money and how like where they where they spend it and all of that so basically throughout their years of building out this this youtube channel he has delivered expense reports of what they're spending on travel and where their money is being generated as new vloggers and it's super interesting he does it really well and it's super interesting to see the progress basically of the life of a vlogger, which I've always found interesting anyways. So I would check out Kara and Nate's blog and it's especially the, the business reports, if you're the expense reports, if you're into business.
0: Cool. I think it's always just so enlightening when people or businesses do that and they're just radically open.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've always been interested. How do people actually create a business or make a living online? So that was a cool discovery.
0: Cool. I'll check it out. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: thank you very much for being the first person on this podcast.
1: It's a real pleasure discussing these things with you.
0: Thank you. All right. So that is it. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, that makes me really happy. There will be eight more episodes this season featuring product managers, engineers, and more marketers.
1: Once again, thanks for listening and see you next time.